a Podcast One production. This is The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. The series where I talk to notable people about five of their defining things. The way it works is my guests always choose a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain an insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. Vashti Whitfield is an author, coach, speaker, mindset expert and documentary maker. Most widely known for the award-winning film Be Here Now and her poignant decision to convert her own personal loss into a catalyst to help others. Highly purpose-driven, Vashti consults with organisations, businesses and individuals to inspire and facilitate the transformation and development of human potential. Uh, so, Vashti, um, what has been your favourite Five of My Life story so far? Well, there are a few, but what I love about this whole series is that it causes you to question what's important to you and choose. And I love the whole concept of choice. So I'm going to pick the rabbi. The rabbi was um, my absolute favourite, 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 favourite. It felt like watching many incredibly beautiful films listening to him. I was taken into different parts of the world, different decades, uh, different psychological experiences, different cultures, uh, spiritual explorations. So it wasn't one bit. It was the journey that I went on. Sorry, I had to use the J word. It was the, the, it was the journey that he took me on from Stanford to um, questions you asked about, you know, God and all of those different things. I'm so glad. Well, listen, I, I mean, we're here to hear all your stories. So we're going to start with the first uh, choice on Five of My Life, which is your film. And we're going back to 1963. You've chosen the David Niven, who's one of my favourite authors, the David Niven film, uh, The Pink Panther. Tell us why you chose that, Vashti. I just have to go, no one will know what that is, who's, you know, under the age of. I, I chose The Pink Panther because it's all about Peter Sellers. And Peter Sellers, for the younger generation who you won't know, was likened to Charlie Chaplin as a comedian, Um, a brilliant poet, a brilliant actor, and just the absolute king of comedy. But underneath that, this dark, depressed um, man, often searching for an identity. But I loved his comedy. I loved the films. I loved the innuendo. Um, there were tremendous undertones of racism, but pointing to racism. Um, and also just set in Paris. So, you know, you could lose yourself in Paris in the sort of film star quality of those times. And then, of course, linking the other famous films he did, Stanley Kubrick's Lolita, and then also The Party, it doesn't matter how old you are, if you watch The Party and you watch Peter Sellers in that movie, you will literally pee your pants laughing. The other reason, it, it wasn't so much about the comedy as well. What always fascinated me is that with comedians, you experience them one way and their interior is so different. You know, dying at 54 from alcoholism, substance abuse, 
he left a remarkable legacy, Peter Sellers, but he, he was traumatised, you know, through finding a sense of self outside of the characters he was known for, either the hilarious party, um, Inspector Cluzo, both inappropriately, you know, kind of racist for their time, and multiple, four marriages. There was this, you know, this disarray internally for him. So I was also fascinated by some how someone can be something to everyone and inside be going through so much challenge. And that was the other reason that I loved it, because I thought, wow, if we can be operating at that level inside and still produce such creativity, um, maybe that is just the plight of some of our most phenomenal creatives, that they are this interesting kind of, um, what's the word, confliction of darkness and light simultaneously. The tears of a clown. Yes. And where were you in your life when you saw it? Well, it's very poignant to a time where I was studying for my GCSEs, HSC in Australia, O-levels if you're an old bastard like yourself, um, (laughs) GCSEs if you're a tiny bit younger. um, And I would get very overwhelmed by study because the way my brain operates is I'm very effective in the moment and I often need to be speaking to clarify certain elements of uh, understanding material. And so what I would do is in my revision time, when I got overwhelmed, I would stick on, because it was video back in those days, I would put on one of the Pink Panthers. And just losing myself in the utter, he was just hopeless. You know when you put your hands over your eyes because you can't watch because there's something is so horrific and embarrassing? And losing myself in his and the environment and just, you know, literally disappearing myself and taking my brain to Paris or that time or that era, it then allowed me to come back in and really focus and, and get on with what I needed to do. Uh, on the subject of films, uh, I want to change the tone substantially away from comedy and ask you about your remarkable film, uh, Be Here Now, about a, uh, well, a pivotal uh, event and journey in your life. Would you mind talking about your film? Sure. Um, I don't think it was really a pivotal event, but, but it was this segue for growth It was when you think you're going down a road one way and you're pretty sure you know the destination and all of a sudden, you know, the milk truck has fallen over and you are not going down that road anymore and you're at a crossroads and you either want to run away and hide in a fetal position in the corner or you go, okay, here we are. What are we going to do with that and what is possible? And that's where... You know, it was it was that poignant moment where life would never be the same again, and we decided to make the documentary so be here s- now. So, for someone who who doesn't know, to tell mm. us the, the the story, it's your your husband passed away from cancer, and you made a film about it. Well, no, the, so it came in a different order. Um, we found out that my husband wasn't recovered, and we were not going to continue on down this exciting path to acting in Hollywood and you know all that stuff that you think it's going to be. And we actually found out that his non-Hodgkin's lymphoma had not gone away, and so we're given again the life expectancy of about three months. And in that moment where we closed the door on one chapter of our life and opened it to another, which was much more about mortality and the possibility of living and or dying, my husband decided because of the resources, the incredible producers we had behind us, the Stars TV network, we had all these remarkable um change agents, shall we call it, in that field behind us, decided to make a documentary. 
And I remember Andy's manager, who's one of the producers on the show, the amazing Sam Mayju from the States going, you know, you really want to do this? And Andy's saying, we have to do this because if we don't do this, how can I make any sense of what's going on? And that was the beginning of our film, Be Here Now. I um, found the, the photos of other people's tattoos from all over the world incredible at the end of the film. Yeah, we're into the thousands mark now in terms of people, but it's really quite poignant because, interestingly enough, not all of them, thank God, but m- many of them will send me a message somehow and say, would you mind, or I've, I've just got this, or it there, you know, like in the tattoo parlour. But the beautiful thing is, along with the many people that also have a full tattoo of Spartacus, which was his more kind of action figure hero on their bodies because it means the same thing, it's more about why they have got it and an ongoing commitment to really honour the philosophy and the meaning behind it. So that, that again, you know, that kind of beautiful tidal wave of legacy, encouraging a greater mental health among people, greater empathy, uh, greater appreciation for life, living and even for death. So again, this like terrific little legacy. Watching your amazing film, uh, incredibly moving and, and, and well done and thought provoking, there, there there's a minor character in it that that just blew me away, sort of sat me down with her presence and authenticity and and sort of unconditional love, which is Andy's mum. She's only in it for like three minutes and it just just sort of, I thought, gosh, she seems so lovely. Is that, would you mind talking about her? She's an incredible woman, extraordinary. If the last few years and her son's illness and Consequently, his death hadn't taken place. We would never have the relationship we have now. And so many people are surprised with how close, just how close we are to my late husband's family and the kids are to their grandparents and and she and I are as friends. There was a time where if ever you talked about anything complex, you know, like I'm really frightened of blah, 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 blah. Her response would be, oh, the weather's looking nice, isn't it? We're going to get some rain tomorrow. And it came to a point where I think it was actually my my late husband, well, it was definitely him rather than me or him, um, said, you know, you're going to have to get with the program here. Like to get through this, we've got to do emotions. So either you do emotions or you get on a plane and you go back to England. And she did emotions. And, you know, grief and losing your son is uh, for some people unimaginable. And she has lent into it in such a... Uh, courageous and brave and honourable way and something she has often says and and lives by is I, I'm living life for him because why would I waste my life and, and waste his life at the same time? So I live life for him whenever it gets me too down. I look at how would he do it and then I do it more. Amazing. And for your second choice on Five My Life, your book, we're moving to... Uh, what I would call harrowing, unsettling fiction. You've chosen the 2015 800-page long A Little Life. Tell me uh, why you chose that and the story behind that. It's interesting that you describe it as 800 pages because it felt like three to me. <laughs> I kind of I kind of ate it whole and it was a little like a combination of eating a mango and a razor blade at the same time. And I use that analogy because... 
the cutting of flesh, you know, the self-harming, um, the beautiful use of language, so poetic that sometimes you feel like you're lost in a, an opera. Her ability to talk about the human experience, however terrifying, traumatic, dysfunctional, which normally terrifies everyone and they just pretend it doesn't exist, encapsulated a global audience of not being able to put down the pages and go into a story so horrible but so poetic and beautiful that you couldn't stay away from it. That was one of the reasons it's one of my favourite books because of the way she writes, because of the way she explores the human experience um, and because... For me, I'm a very visual person, so her words and her choice of language made me feel like I was not only reading but I was watching, living. And I'm a big fan of the human experience. Every rich, beautiful, horrible, catastrophic aspect of that and in that book, I felt all of it. And then, of course, it took me to her first book, which is completely different. It feels like it was by a different author, which made me love a little life even more because of what and who she became to write that book. So the book, I found it, it stayed with me for months after I had finished it. What effect did it have on your life? It's not that it stayed with me for enormous amounts of time after. Her writing and her ability to share the human experience so beautifully and creatively stayed with me. While I was in the book, though, and I say in the book versus reading it, it was so powerful and such a rare treat and invitation to remain in tragedy. You know, I am an unusual character in that, for example, I'm working with someone at the moment that is in a major life change. They've sold their company for millions and they've also lost their long-term relationship and family. So they're in major change. And they've been talking about the fact that they just want out of the sadness and I've been working with them because I work often with the whole concept of grief and growth. As we grow, we, we have to grieve. And so there's this tremendous avoidance as human beings to get out of our suffering. You know, to, they can't, we can't stand it. We, can't, we don't think it's okay to feel anything other than happy, whatever happiness is. And I'm a big fan of, you know, very dark Nordic TV, you know, horrible films that talk about horrible things and there was something about this book being in that, even when we weren't in the darkest moments of it, it was there. And it's strangely a safe place for me to be. I, I like that knife's edge is a you know, silly expression to use in this instance, but it's like in that precipice of the fragility of the human condition. And that's what I loved most about being in that book was it was almost like you were terrified and horrified what was going to happen on the next page. But in that, I relished it because it's actually quite uh, enjoyable is the wrong word, but it's a very meaningful place to operate from for me. Yeah, I think it's, is it Kubler-Ross, the, the, the grief curve, where it's, it's an absolute disaster to try and flatten it and not go through the grieving misery part of it. I mean, interestingly, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, her whole um, theory was proven wrong and then she went on to write another book to, to, after having gone through it herself to rewrite it. It's not linear. You know, you can be absolutely fine one minute and then it's literally like you've been hit by a tsunami. 
and everyone experiences it in a very different way. It's all about also the neuroscience of where how we store memory. There's so many different delicious complexities that go with that. But I have this absolute belief that, you know, the only way through is straight through the middle and not everybody has the capacity to deal with that. In your work, you help people dealing with their own traumatic events. Is that fair to say or so effectively i work with transformation right um people don't typically come to me because they've experienced trauma they come to me because they're ready to embrace different aspects of potential expansion changing direction and within that we all have some level of experience secret story that we're hiding And when anyone works with me, I'm the most candid, authentic human being pretty much. You know, like literally recently I got one of those um, emails and the email said, uh, you are, I have video footage of you pleasuring yourself. And you know how instantly when you see a police car, you feel like you've done something terrible. Well, I looked at this email, which already had some broken English and I thought, oh my goodness, uh, let me just rack my brains and think about my past. Could there be a video of me, I mean, pleasuring yourself? Does that mean I'm like eating a pizza or what does that actually mean? Anyway, the point is, is that I suddenly went through this whole experience of maybe it was going to be publicly shown. I was going to be embarrassed, but I managed to get really so okay with my authenticity that I thought, you know what? My first sex tape at 46, I can (laughs) dig that. So anyone that works with me, going back to your original question, if there is something that is blocking and stopping you, it will come up and then we will work through it and then we will move on. So when I say I don't work specifically with trauma, um, there's usually something lurking in every human being because that's how we're made up. Well, so on that very point, tell me about your your young adulthood. Um, so my young adulthood, so I did two degrees. My first degree was in the north of England. Um, but before that, I spent, uh, I went to a Steiner school in Bristol. And I was the era of Banksy and Massive Attack and Tricky um, and the Wild Bunch and you know, salt and pepper and hip hop and breakdancing. And I grew up in a very multicultural environment, especially because of my childhood and very much the life my my mum particularly wanted us to experience as, as well-rounded kids. Um, so already at a young age, we were exposed to a tremendous amount. And then when I went away to university, I, having grown up, and I won't go into it too much now, but having grown up in such a multicultural environment, I never quite felt like I fitted anywhere but everywhere. And so whenever I went to a new country or a new city, it was never about the specific entry point that I had come into that place that would stimulate and serve me. And so going to uni in Leeds, the north of England, I had this wonderful kind of middle class university arts degree going on with all of my fantastic friends, very lovely from all around, you know, the UK. But then simultaneously, because of my love of exercise and energy and force and power, and very much at that stage in my life, processing a number of uh, incongruences from my childhood, I fell very passionately into strength and powerlifting. So I spent a lot of my time in like spit and blood on the floor, bodybuilding gyms. And because of my posh little accent and fearless, vibrant self, became incredible with friends, with this kind of underworld, if you like, you know, from like six foot seven bodybuilding Mr. Olympia 
all the way down to, you know, half the security on the nightclub doors. So I could kind of walk in anywhere and had this kind of um, interesting blanket of security and safety around me, which made me this kind of interesting character, shall we say, on the university floor, but then also, you know, on the the nightclub doors of uh, Leeds and around that time. Okay, so for your film, uh, we were in the world of comedy. For your book, we were in the world of tragedy, for want of a better word. For your uh, song choice on Five My Life, we're going to the world of romance because you've chosen uh, a single from the eighth and final studio album of Roxy Music, Avalon. Tell me about that. I love the way you use the word romance about Avalon. Well, well you, you know it's the island where uh, King Arthur is taken when he when he dies. So it's, uh, a, it's a very romantic story in the background of it, whether it... Absolutely. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and again, I love that that's where your head went. So, <laughs> so for me, my father was incredibly influential in terms of music. You know, we grew up with Jackson Brown, Van Morrison, Cat Stevens, Paddy Smith, um, Blondie, um, so many incredible artists. And actually, it was my dad that always used to listen to Brian Ferry. And so that's how, you know, I was kind of into slightly more kind of poppy music because we were younger. But he introduced us to Brian Ferry and Roxy Music. And it was at that time, it was again, it was a very sexy time. You know, you're thinking about, uh, for the younger listeners, you're Jerry, um, Mick Jagger, um, the gorgeous Jerry. Well, I can't think of her name. Hall, Jer- Jerry, Jerry Hall. Hall, the most, you know, one of the most incredibly sexy women. It was Maria Helvin. It was David Bailey, photography. You know, lots of amazing boobs and black and white photographs. So I was always kind of fascinated and um in awe of sort of sexy women. I was, like, even from a young age, I wanted to be this mature, sexy woman. I still do. I haven't got there yet. Now, there's a story, though, with Avalon, because while simultaneously at this young age, I think we were listening to kind of solely music and kind of kind of cooler, slightly hip-hoppy, you know, genre was coming in. In the background, a lot of our parents were listening to Avalon. So I'm going to be very very careful about what I share here. But I remember being a young, like a teenager in a dark room with my boyfriend, Ewan. And Avalon was playing in the background. And I was attempting to do something to go to the next level in my experience, shall we say, in the things you do as young teenagers. And while this music was going on, I was working really, really hard to accomplish this thing. And all of a sudden, I hit the jackpot and I was kind of fist bumping the air in the dark to what I had just accomplished. Uh, And by the way, Ewan was much more pleased than I was, but we both got to the end. We were very happy. And in the background... Avalon was playing by Roxy Music. So in the background and whenever I walk into a store or anywhere now and Avalon is playing, I literally turn around with the biggest, most hilarious smile on my face and kind of want to accost some stranger and say, do you know that I gave my first blah, 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 blah to this piece of music as if I'm sharing like having made a souffle or won a race, but actually it was a kind of sexual conquest of my youth. That is why I love that song, because it always puts a big smile on my face. Okay, so it's a sort of um, 
uh, a variant on a losing virginity story. Not as intense as that, right? Because it's you know that's that's a whole nother level. This was this was more. Um, it's kind of sweeter, my story. It's kind of cuter and sweeter. It's not quite as as um, significant as the virginity story. <laughs> um, moving on to your fourth choice, the place on Five My Life. We're going to America, and you have chosen San Francisco. Well, I have chosen San Francisco. There are so many different countries in the world and places that I would choose, but San Francisco was my first introduction to North America. Good place to start, right? So many experiences, so evocative. You know, everyone knows what San Francisco used to be like in terms of the books that you would read about it, the stories that you would hear, the hot tubs, the Castro, uh, Mardi Gras. Oh, just the creativity, bursting and bustling, the hate, just so many stories that go with that place. For me, you could see me either teaching aerobics at Gold Jean, Gold's Gym and or helping curate my friend's incredible contemporary jewellery gallery, which was on Parallel to Hate. So I had this incredible, as I always have in all aspects of my life, duality to how I did San Francisco. Like its hilly landscape, I just find that you can be travelling very fast <laughs> downhill there or you can be at the top of the hill with the most incredible view that gives you the perspective and clarity for who and how you want to operate in the world. And what I also loved about San Francisco was that I would go to dinner. You know, I used to go, we used to go to a regular dinner with the same friend, beautiful Mike Holmes, who owned the gallery. And we would go to his dinner and he had this dinner for 15 years. Every Tuesday or Thursday, the same small group of people would come every week. And I was privy to be invited to that. And everyone sat around the table, had like three different, not careers, but parts to their life. They were an architect and a glass blower or an engineer and a kite designer. There was just this delicious texture to everyone I met. And it was so liberating and so much more fearless than my UK living. Um, it reminded me, it showed me, I should say, of what was possible and how I could live. And to be honest with you, I always thought I would go back there. And it was only when I discovered Sydney that I put it on ice. Wonderful. Moving on to your fifth and final choice on Five My Life, uh, you've chosen a watch. Uh, could you describe it and tell me why you've chosen it? Well, my watch is, it's very heavy and it makes lovely sounds when you move it so you know it's there. And when you're running, you get my arm kind of, not aches, but it's that sense of somebody, something is there. So it has a presence of its own and it's of the gold colour. And there was a joke had by my gorgeous late husband, the Andy, Andy as we call him, um, where in pursuit of what we were trying to create together, he might be going back and forth to LA for pilot season or, you know, in a abseiling outfit on the, on the side of a building trying to bring in the money while I was doing the baby thing, you know, breastfeeding. We always had this kind of agreement that there would be one of the parents like fully on the ground, which meant he had to work a lot and I did a lot of little babies solo, you know, and that's, that's a gift in the same breath. Anyway, where at any single time where it was clearly a little unfair, the distribution of lack of sleep or focus, it would be, don't worry, babe, that'll come in a nice big heavy gold Rolex for your 40th. And it was kind of a joke, right? Because it's just a watch and it's, it's a brand and whatever. But it, it gave weight to the, there's something special coming to honour the hard work. And, and 
there's something coming to honour everything we work for where there will be more abundance, right? Because we, we, we compromise a lot to go after what we were really trying to create in our lives. So what were you trying to create? Well, the beautiful thing about our relationship was it wasn't about the thing. It was like, life is an adventure. What are we up for? What can we do? What's on offer? And so when, when he fell passionately in love with the whole idea of acting and directing and cameras and all that sort of stuff, and we actually saw that there was an opportunity that that was possible, but it was going to take diligence and focus and commitment and getting knocked down and back up and knocked down and back up, we saw that it wasn't about becoming an actor or becoming famous. It was about at this particular time while we're rearing these little people, if we can create this phenomenal platform where you have got the opportunity to act on the big film stage, as it were, and you are going to have the ability to have an abundance, let's just say, financially, creatively, in all those different ways, what can we do with that? And because of the nature of my work, it always has to be purpose-driven. It always has to have meaning and it always has to be of service in some way. So we'd always intended that with any opportunity we got, we would flip that and turn it into opportunities for others. So for us, it was always in pursuit of following your creativity, your self-expression and your potential, but to be of service with that long term. Wow. So the watch, when did he spring it on you? So he died. <laughs> so he didn't spring it on me at all. Right. And I didn't hold him responsible for that. I did not say at his funeral, he was a beautiful father, a but beautiful husband. Watch? But where the fuck is my watch? I did not say that. Sometime later, their kid's beautiful godfather, who is and was a very, very, very dear friend of Andy's and worked with him, turned up on a trip back from L.A., and he looked like, I don't, he was carrying like a motorbike helmet bag. You know, they looked like a kind of change bag if you're going to change money at a bank. And he walked in and he was like a bit sort of uncomfortable, antsy. And he was like, where are the kids? And I said, oh, they're outside. He says, I've got something for you. And I was like, okay. And he pulled out from this bag this beautiful leather, like that incredible kind of 1963 Porsche color green leather box and he opened it up and inside was this beautiful gold Rolex and he said happy birthday this is for you I bought it for you from Andy oh gorgeous do, do you uh, like wear it swimming and washing up and all those things I or, wear it all the time all the time right and, I, I don't take it off and and, and the dear old Rolex it, it, it is indestructible it'll just well I look I'm not attached to things uh, I'm I'm really not attached to... I quite like my children. I, I try and keep a hold of those, but, you know, we can't control anything. It will be with me as long as it's supposed to be with me. Right. I don't think it's a, a healthy thing or a necessary thing to have attachment to things. Wow. Um, we're coming to the last question, which is who would you like to hear on Five My Life next and why? The person, I mean, it may seem a bit biased because we spent time talking about her already, but I would love to hear you interview Hanya Yana Higara. The author of A Little Life. Yes, and The People in the Trees, which actually became my second favourite book. <laughs> okay. And, and I, I think an amazing achievement for her to write that book and it be about four male friends and her be a woman and 
just what an incredible sort of creative feat to pull it off. Mm, I think it's more, it's not so much about gender and her ability to lean into the human condition. And that's what she does remarkably because in her first book, The People in the Trees, it is all, again, predominantly male. And if you did not know that she had written it a little like A Little Life, I really genuinely believe there would be an assumption it was a a male author. So there is something remarkable in her ability to uh, not conform to any sense of gender-specific in the way that she writes. I look forward to trying to get her on the five of my life. But Vashti, thank you so much for coming on. I, I really, really appreciate you sharing your choices with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. The Five of My Life was presented by me, Nigel Marsh, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer, Alex Mitchell. Sound production and theme music by Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicholish. For more episodes, search The Five of My Life podcast. Go to podcastoneaustralia.com.au or download the Podcast One Australia app.